Let's uh, think about letter C today, carpentry career. The Lord worked with his hands, he worked hard, and his career as a carpenter lasted much longer than his preaching career. Not the way I would have organized it, but uh, God works in mysterious ways. And people say that nowadays, they're usually making fun or belittling our faith, but it is, it's a fact. God's got a whole different way of thinking than we've got, and we can understand some of it truly through Scripture, but we're not going to understand it wholly, completely. We don't even have the capacity to do that, so we've got to trust Him on some of these things we don't understand. Look at Mark 6, verses 1 through 4. Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown. He grew up and worked as a carpenter in Nazareth, so we're in Galilee, the northern region of Israel, city of Nazareth here. And his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath, that's Friday sundown through Saturday sundown, that's the day according to the Old Testament law. And the Old Testament was spirituality with training wheels, points to Christ, it's spiritual preliminary, points to the Messiah. Jesus fulfilled the law for us. So we're not under the Old Testament Sabbath anymore. But it's not a bad idea to take a day off once every week from your routine. It's good for you. But when the Sabbath came, which was a required day off under the Old Testament law that those folks were living under, he, Jesus, began to teach in the synagogue. And many of the listeners were astonished. These are people that he would have known for decades, would have worked for as a carpenter, saying, where does this man get these things? He didn't go to seminary. He's not a rabbi in a, in a formal sense. And what is this wisdom given to him and such miracles as are being performed by his hands? Isn't this just the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Uh, Mary gave birth to Jesus via the virgin conception and nine months later the virgin birth. But after that, she and Joseph had normal uh, marital relations and they had uh, four other sons and a couple of sisters too. And aren't not his sisters here with us? Uh, who is this guy? Who does he think he is? He must think he's the Messiah, and they don't believe he is the Messiah, the Savior. And they took offense at him. This isn't the first time the locals reacted like this. And Jesus said to them, you know, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. They take him for granted. And among his own relatives and in his own household. But uh, Dustin, what I want to emphasize here is verse 3. They're saying, hey, he's preaching like he's a prophet slash Messiah, and he's just a carpenter. In fact, he's the carpenter. We'll talk about that. That's important in a minute. Yeah, we're going to survey the life of Christ. We're going to walk through A, B, C, D, and, and so on. Uh, two weeks ago, uh, we looked at A and B. Angels announced the supernormal pregnancy of John the Baptist and then the supernatural pregnancy of Jesus uh, to the respective mothers, Elizabeth and Mary. And then we saw the birth in Bethlehem, which was important because they lived in the north in Nazareth. Mary and Joseph did, but Bethlehem's in the south in Judea, south of Jerusalem. But there was a prophecy in the Old Testament that said the Jewish Savior would be born in Bethlehem of Judea. And the Roman Empire, uh, luckily, I don't believe in luck, and it's bad luck to be superstitious, by the way, so don't do it. Uh, the Roman government just happened just at that very time frame to have a tax census which required Mary Joseph to travel to Bethlehem just before the birth and she gave birth to her firstborn baby and wrapped him up like a dead man and put him in a cattle trough. Again, God works in strange ways, doesn't he? 
Nancy, because you and I wouldn't have planned it that way at all. And now we come to C, carpentry career, and we'll focus on that uh, this morning. But first, let's uh, pray that we'll be teachable to God's Word here in this portion of Scripture this morning. And also, let's pray for our uh, military. I moved some of the photos around on that collage there, but uh, we got Tom in the upper right now, so I know uh, Ray will be happy about that. And our peace officers and our firefighters, okay? And, uh, yeah, Murray, if you will, lead us in, in prayer in that direction, okay? Yeah, I don't, I don't know S- Sydney and, and Wendy real well yet. I look forward to getting to know them better, but you guys did something really good with those kiddos because when you got Ashley, Amber, Murray, and Sydney, the better looking Sydney is the daughter, you know, and then, uh, and, uh, we've got to, we're going to get free medical care soon, right? In about eight years, you guys will come back and uh, maybe instead of after preaching, you can give us kind of uh, medical consults, right? Well, as is our custom after we pray, we have uh, abstract thought warmer uppers. You know, you got to use abstract thinking to understand scripture. And today we got uh, one from Carol who uh, sent me this. And it was so bad, I thought I would show it to you that I'm not the only one with bad jokes. But she sent me this. She said, uh, what kind of shoes do frogs wear? Open-toed. <laughs> T-O-A-D. Uh, I think that calls for three more from other sources. Why are bikes always fatigued? Because they are too tired. They are too tired. I'm trying to explain the jokes. but uh, James to John, why are you scratching your back? John to James, because I'm the only person in the world who knows exactly where it itches. And finally, where do really old flags go to retire? Poland. You know, they're on poles, right? Okay, very good. Uh, we are just beginning the life of Christ, A through Z. One Savior, four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 26 major events. And you know, you know, preachers tend to jump around and hit all of these uh, major events sooner or later. But we don't, I grew up and I knew Jesus turned water into wine. I knew that uh, he was transfigured and I know he was baptized and I certainly knew he went to the cross and rose again. But I couldn't have put those in any kind of order. And this system allows you to do that. And when you put them in order, you see it, it, it helps you understand, I think, some of the things Jesus does. Because, you know, obviously we start with A and B. Angels announced the pregnancies of John the Baptist and Jesus and birth in Bethlehem for Jesus and then for the bulk of his his life, he stays in Nazareth building things out of wood and stone. But during his ministry, we see the first phase of his ministry called the Great Galilee Ministry, where he's proclaiming the fact that he is on the ground. Okay, you've got 2,000 plus years of prophecy saying the Jewish Messiah is coming. And John the Baptist gets the word out first as his forerunner. And then Jesus is doing big miracles and Sermon on the Mount and getting the word out as widely as possible without Twitter and Instagram that he is on the ground and the Jewish Messiah, who's also the Savior of the world, is alive and doing what he was prophesied he would do. Uh, and crowds get bigger and bigger and bigger, so much so the religious leaders in Jerusalem have to come out with a position on Jesus. He's too famous to ignore I'm sure they would like to ignore them because the status quo for them was great. They're making a lot of money in the religion business. And so OP stands for opposition offered and then parables pronounced. Uh, after Jesus' success and his notoriety becomes so great, 
the national religious leaders can't ignore it. Uh, they either have to embrace him for who he claims to be or explain him away. And which one do they do? Did they embrace him? Explain him away. Now, how are you going to explain away somebody who is feeding uh, 12,000 people out of one little boy's Happy Meal? You've got 5,000 men, wives, and kids. There's at least 12,000 people. Uh, when 12,000 people saw it happen, they can't say it didn't happen. I mean, 2,000 years later, the skeptics can say Jesus did do the miracles. The disciples made it up later. They're watching him do the miracles. In fact, they'd sent a delegation to follow him and watch him. They seem to do all this stuff. So what are they going to do? They don't want him as Savior, so they say he's a satanically possessed false prophet. That's the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin is categorical, absolute, total rejection of Jesus Christ, and in their case, to his face, and saying, you're not the Christ, you may be the Antichrist, and you're not empowered by the Spirit of God, you're, you're empowered by this, by Satan. That's what they were saying, and that's the tipping point for the whole ministry. And then Jesus tells parables about what things are going to look like from that point until he comes back. Because once the national religious leaders say he's committed a capital crime under the Old Testament law, false prophet, demon-possessed prophet, satanic-possessed prophet, they've got to have him killed. There's no doubt about it. So humanly speaking, this is all, Christ is crucified for the foundation of the world and the plan of God. This is all going to happen. But he says, you know, uh, stumbling blocks will come, but woe to them through which they come. You know, it's, it's all planned, but these people are of their own uh, volition, rejecting him, repudiating him, pre- preparing to lynch him, basically. And so for the last year of the ministry, everything changes. And rather than let's get the word out as widely as possible, he's circling the wagons to prepare the 12 to continue after his death, resurrection, and ascension. And that's why out here, after he does a miracle, he says, don't tell anybody <laughs> until later. Because, why? Because if according to the accusers, his miracles are done by Satan. Every time he does another miracle, he's done another satanic work. And that just, anything you say can and will be used against you. This is all going to be used against him. And so that's why that kind of thing changes. Okay, So we're in the very early phases of this. But uh, we'll walk through this. And so this life of Christ, let's just see kind of the big uh, picture of the life of Christ. And that's one of the nice benefits of it. But we're going to be in letter C today which is carpentry career, and uh, we already read Matthew 6, right? Yeah, you know, uh, salvation is of the Lord. It's not something we do for God. It's something he does for us. And all three members of the Trinity are involved. There's one God, and the Father is fully deity, and the Son is fully deity, and the Holy Spirit is fully deity, but the Father isn't the Son nor the, the Holy Spirit. It's a different person. The Son is full deity, but he's not the Father nor the Son. The Father didn't die on the cross. The Son did. The Holy Spirit doesn't convict and draw us to salvation. Uh, Jesus doesn't do that. The Holy Spirit does. And he's God, but he's not the other two. So the Father is the architect of the plan of salvation. Jesus is the active agent. He's the one sent by the Father. He's taking a subordinate role. He's not subordinate uh, ontologically to Jesus, but he takes a subordinate role. And he says things like, I didn't come to be served, I came to serve and to give my life a ransom, right? And then the Holy Spirit is the uh, activating agent of salvation. He convicts, opens our heart so we can see and believe. But uh, I love that song just because it's a nice, positive, up-tempo 
kind of presentation of kind of the big picture there. All right, carpentry career. Luke 3.23 tells us when he began his ministry of preaching, and you know the trajectory of that now, goes to a pike's peak and then down. Jesus himself was about 30 years of age. Now, about is a New Testament Greek word that means about, not necessarily exactly. So it's plus two or three years one way or the other. But just, I like round numbers, so let's just use 30. But we don't know he's exactly 30 when he begins his ministry. Uh, the Gospel of John makes it clear the ministry is three years long because it, as opposed to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which emphasized the great Galilean ministry and the last trip to Jerusalem, Peg, and then the crucifixion and the resurrection, Matthew, Mark, and Luke emphasize that. That's their outline. John emphasizes four Passovers. First Passover, where he says, destroy this temple in three days, I'll rest. You know, the second Passover, that's one year. Third Passover, that's two years. Fourth Passover, passion, crucifixion, resurrection. That's four Passovers, that's three years. So he begins at 30, we're going to say. I know Luke says about. So he might have been 32. He might have been 27, but about 30. And that tells us that Jesus was a carpenter. And the actual, you realize when when the Gospels were written, they wrote them in Greek, not King James English, okay? Although King James is the greatest English translation of all time, but it's over 400 years old, and the English language has changed a lot in 400 years. And that's why you you need new translations, because the receiving language has changed. But uh, carpenter is a good translation, but the Greek term that's used to describe what Jesus did as an occupation, both in the Mark passage we read and the Matthew passage, where he's called the carpenter's son, is the word tekton, it's almost like technology, but it's tekton, and it means a builder. Now, I know what you're thinking. A builder, that's a guy that owns a company that sells houses and buys land, and he, he's a builder. Some, some, he doesn't actually necessarily do stuff. But no, it means somebody who builds stuff with wood or stone. And we'll show you some examples of some of the stuff Jesus might have built, literally. We'll show you some things Jesus might have built uh, from archaeology in a minute. But let me ask you a trick question here. Blanche, if uh, Matthew 13, talking about the Nazarenes uh, being upset at Jesus again, they get upset at him several times, he's called the carpenter's son, but in Mark, he's called the carpenter. So who's, who's right? Is Matthew right or is Mark right? They're both right, and those would have both been terms that would have been used for him by the locals. Uh, Joseph, who was the legal father of Jesus, was a tecton, a skilled worker in wood or stone, and according to the Talmud, now I know Murray knows what the Talmud is because he took Introduction to World Religions at Cameron University. We call it the Harvard of Oklahoma. An angel took it, and they will tell you the Talmud is the written form of the Jewish oral law. It's what the rabbis said about applying the Tanakh, what we call the Old Testament. And according to the Talmud, any good Jewish father would do at least three things for his son. He would teach him the Torah, teach him the law. He'd teach him a trade. He'd teach him his trade. If they were a blacksmith, you'd teach him to be a blacksmith. If you're a tecton, you'd teach him to be a tecton. So he'd teach him a Torah, teach him a trade, and teach him how to swim. That's what the Talmud says, which isn't scripture, but it's rabbinical thinking about scripture. Probably a good idea, right? But, uh, yeah, notice he's called the carpenter in uh, Mark. Now, uh, some of the commentators will say, well, uh, in fact, I think the NIV first century study Bible, which I quote there, 
uh, may say something like, well, Nazareth was so small, uh, when it says the carpenter, it means he was the only carpenter. I don't think so. Uh, you would have had Joseph and sons when Jesus was uh, a young working man. And we know he's got brothers, right? Because he lists them in the Mark passage. And guess what? As the oldest son, after Joseph died, and Joseph would have been dead when the uh, ministry starts, guess it says Yeshua and, son, uh, and brothers now. Yeshua is the word for Jesus, right? Now, watch this. Uh, let me show you how that word, uh, that definite article, the carpenter or the teacher can be used. Look at John chapter 3. Hold your place in, in Mark. In fact, you don't have to hold your place in Mark because we're not going to go back to Mark. We will be going to Colossians, however. But look at John chapter 3. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then you got chapters and verses, and chapters are streets, and the verses are like numbers. You know, I live at 2509 Virginia. And we're going to look at chapter 3, and let's just read this. Now, Jesus is in Jerusalem during the first Passover of the four that John talks about during Jesus' three-year ministry after he's no longer a full-time tecton or technon. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, a member of the Sanhedrin, the 70-man uh, Jewish Supreme Court Senate that ran Judaism. Uh, and we already know what they're going to decide to say about Jesus, but he's an exception to that. But this is before that happens. This man came to Jesus in Jerusalem by night, probably not just because it would be embarrassing for him to be interacting with somebody as insignificant as, as a guy from Nazareth, but probably because he's, they're both very busy during the day. I think that's the main reason, but we'll, we'll ask him in heaven, right? And said, Rabbi, very respectful title for Nicodemus to use for this untrained, in the rabbinical system, a uh, Jewish carpenter, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do the signs you do unless God's with him. So he's, at this point, before the official word is out, is saying, you're doing messianic signs, so you must be connected with God in a legitimate way. Uh, Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's almost like Nicodemus wants to compliment Jesus, but Jesus wants to get to what he's really thinking about, because Nicodemus, my take is, he's an aging guy. Now, I told you I turned 65 in March, right from right after my mother died, I turned 65, and that was a shocker. The only thing more shocking is to realize I'm married to a 65-year-old woman. That was shocking. But it's working, you know, 45 years in a row. In a rear, that's, that's hard, 45 years in a row. But anyway, yeah, but I told you when I turned 65, uh, you can call me older, but don't call me elderly. I do not like that term. I refuse to be elderly even when I'm 95. But anyway, my take on Nicodemus is he's probably in his 80s or 90, a lot older than I am, but he's worried about his mortality. And he's got a system that says you've got to be really, 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 really good by obeying the law to earn your way to heaven. That's not the way it works, but that's what they were thinking. Jesus came because that can't work, because you can't work your way into heaven, so he died and paid your debt for you. He's worried about his mortality, and Jesus is just getting to what the guy's really concerned about. And Jesus knows that. He says, hey, don't don't compliment me superficially. Let's talk about what you really need to hear. you got to be born again spiritually to go to heaven, and you ain't got it. You've been depending on what a good person you are, and religiously, this is a really good person. Watch this. Nicodemus thinks Jesus is saying you got to be born again physically. He's thinking in terms of physic, physical birth. How can a man be born again when he's old? 
I'm 85 years old here and I'm falling apart and I'm worried about dying. Can't enter a second time in his mother's womb, have another chance to earn his way to salvation. That's what he's thinking. Be born again, can he? Jesus said, I'm not talking about physical birth. I'm talking about spiritual birth. And first he uses a metaphor, then he tells you that uh, in verse 6, that which is born of the flesh, physical birth with your mom happens once, that which is born of the spirit, be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. That's number 2. But Jesus says in verse 5, Truly I say to you, using a metaphor, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, one birth is of water, one is of the Spirit, can't go to heaven. You don't go to heaven unless you're born again. Now, there are some people who read the Bible in Bible McNugget form, and every time they see water, they see water baptism, and they say, unless they baptize you themselves this week, you can't be saved. There ain't no water baptism here. Jesus and Nicodemus are talking about the difference between physical birth and spiritual birth. And he says, you got to be born of the water. That's physical birth. When your water breaks, it's almost time for you to be born in the spirit, spiritual birth. Then he repeats what he said in men in verse 5. Jesus does. He says, that which is born of the flesh, of the water sack through your mother's womb, is flesh. That's just a fleshly thing. That just lasts for a hundred years if you're fortunate. Yeah? And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. That's forever, man. And that's what you got to have to go to heaven. He says, don't be amazed. At that point, Nicodemus' jaw has just dropped. So Jesus says, don't be amazed. I said you got to be born a second time. you got to be born spiritually, not just physically. It's not about you earning your way to salvation. You're going to have to receive it as a gift. And he says, this is kind of a, a real but invisible thing. The wind blows where it wishes. And we live in Oklahoma. We know all about that. And you hear the sand of it, but you don't see it. You see the effects of it, right? That's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about being born in the Spirit. It's real, but it's invisible. Nicodemus, who isn't able to connect the dots yet, although he will, he's going to help bury Jesus, and that would have been very dangerous for him at that time. He, you're going to see Nicodemus in heaven. How can these things be? You totally blow my categories. You're ruining my theology. You know. And then Jesus says, are you the teacher of Israel? I don't understand this. He's making a point. Does that mean Nicodemus is the only teacher in Israel? No. That means he's greatly esteemed. He's highly exalted, especially appreciated, uh, great credibility. When they say Jesus is the carpenter, I don't think it means he's the only carpenter in Nazareth. All his brothers are carpenters too. But he's the, the, the top, top one. He's the most respected one. Let's keep going. It's too good to stop. Truly I say to you, Jesus says, uh, we speak of what we know and testify of what we've seen. And you don't accept our testimony, even though you're the one of the greatest teachers in Israel. I told you earthly things, basic stuff, spirituality 101, you don't believe. How will you believe if I tell you more, deeper stuff? You're not going to be able to get it. And then he says, no one has ascended into heaven and come back to tell you what heaven's all about. But I've descended from heaven. I'm the one who was sent from heaven, and I know how this works, okay? I'm the son of man. And then he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, they were grumbling in the wilderness as they often did and God sent these painful snakes to bite them and they then said Moses we're sorry tell God to fix this and he said put a brass serpent on a pole and everybody who looks at the pole one look will solve you will save you from the snake bites it's a look of faith Jesus on the cross that saves you from your sin as Moses was lifted up in the wilderness lifted up the serpent in the wilderness on this pole even so the son of man Jesus talking about himself will be lifted up on the cross so that whoever believes, Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, black or white, you know, 
really religious people like Nicodemus, really irreligious people like the woman in the next chapter, chapter 4, woman at the well. Everyone who believes, who active, receptively trusts in him will have eternal life. For God, the Father, the author, the architect of the plan, so loved the world, he gave, he sent his only son, and his son took that that role to be the active agent of salvation, that whoever believes in him shall not perish lake of fire after the great white throne judgment, but have, present tense, possession, eternal life. For God did not send the Son in the world to judge the world. We were already stood condemned, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the unique Son of God. So boom. Because Jesus died for our sins, we don't have to die in our sins. And Jesus is already talking about the cross here to this guy in a private session uh, long before the rejection that we see in letter O. Uh, but it's always been about that. In the Old Testament, there were promises about the Messiah, Jesus, and people were saved by trusting in the pr- promised Messiah. For us, we're looking back at the first coming of Christ and we're saved by trusting in the fact that Christ died for our sin. He who knew no sin was made to be a sin offering for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. But to the one who does not work, like Nicodemus, but who believes in Christ who justifies the ungodly, what do you have to do to be saved? you got to be ungodly. Don't worry, you qualify. We all do, all right? But to the one who... But to the one who does not work but believes in Christ who justifies the ungodly, that person's faith is reckoned as righteousness. So you have Abraham being called righteous even though he wasn't in his walk, but he was in his standing. You have Paul saying, I have a righteousness now that's not of my own through the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness which comes from God, not the Southern Baptist Convention, on the basis of faith. And you even have a reference in Jude to righteous lot. Because as a believer in the promise of the Messiah, he had a righteous standing. Now, here's the great ending of the good news. Jesus died for our sins, but he's not dead anymore. Now, I can show you in Shang Mai, not Shang Rai, where they've got they've gotten as of this morning they got one of those kids out of that cave. You hear that? And it looks like it's going to work. They've got one out, which is if you can get one out, you can probably get them all out. So that's a miracle. The Shang Rai and Shang Mai are in northern Thailand. We were in Chiang Mai before we visited Chiang Rai many years ago now. And on Easter Sunday, our guide took us to this pagoda where we could uh, see a building that had a portion of the collarbone of the Lord Buddha. And I thought, man, that's weird because I've been to the garden tomb and there's no collarbone or anything left there because of a literal bodily resurrection. So this is our invitation to you. We're not going to sing just as I am 18 times and try to get you psychologically worked up. We're going to say if... Uh, you've never trusted Jesus Christ for salvation, uh, and the Spirit is convicting you of your sin. You got it, your righteousness, you can't crank it out, and judgment, it's coming. You can, uh, as easy as uh, the Philippian jailer said, what must I do to be saved? Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll, you will be saved. Uh, it's not just mental assent, it's full consent of the will. Uh, I don't think there's a certain amount of overt emotion. The day I got saved, I was very emotional. I do think there's true contrition and guilt, because otherwise you don't need a Savior unless you are guilty, feel guilty of your sins, and the Holy Spirit does that for you. But you can, right where you sit, uh, trust Jesus Christ. In Acts 10, when Peter's preaching to Cornelius and his household, he didn't even get to an invitation. As soon as he tells them that, the Holy Spirit falls on them because they all started trusting Christ, you know? 
We like to add all kinds of bells and whistles that may or may not be helpful. But today can be the day of salvation. If you've not, if you've been depending on yourself and being a good person, that ain't good enough. If it had been, Nicodemus would have been fine. If you think you've blown it too badly, that's not a problem either. Because if God convicts you of your sin, he, he saves all kinds of people. Uh, you're not too bad. You can't have this. You're not so good. You don't need it. But it comes from trusting in the Savior. By grace, grace means unmerited favor. For by grace are you saved through faith. Faith in the crucified, risen Savior. Daring to believe, put all your chips on him, as it were, that what he did to pay for your sin debt can get you to heaven. And he rose again. A dead Savior can't get you from Oklahoma to heaven, but the risen one is the only one who can. So uh, just as a childlike faith expression, just say, Lord Jesus, I need you. I'm a sinner. I can't fix it. I'm guilty. I believe Jesus died for my sins and rose again. I trust in him, I accept him as my savior. Uh, where do all the good works come up front? They're not there, but to the one who does not work, who believes in him, justifies the ungodly. The good works are the fruit. Then effect, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, which we quoted already, for by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourself is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Not of works. But then the next verse, Kitty says, for we are his workmanship, poema means work of art, created in Christ Jesus when the Spirit regenerates us for good works. We're not saved by good works. We're saved for good works. Good works are the fruit, the result of salvation. You know, That's why the Bible never calls unbelievers to come to church. It calls the church to go out in the world. And sure, come to church and hear somebody like me explain the gospel. But uh, Murray can explain the gospel as well as I can. And hopefully he's going to have a big impact on the engineering program at OSU. Okay, it's already academically number one. I want you to move it up to the spiritual number one. Now let's talk about uh, some of the things Jesus may have done with his own hands in uh, during his uh, 18 years as an apprentice and then full more carpenter. But come think of it, let me read uh, these two sections from these study Bibles I have here. Uh, footnote from the MacArthur Study Bible says, uh, the people of Nazareth who rejected him, he's just the carpenter, he's just the son, son of the carpenter, uh, son of the carpenter. People of Nazareth still thought of Jesus as one who carried on his father's trade as a craftsman, a tech uh, ton, a builder in work, wood or stone, who worked in wood and other hard materials, stones, bricks. The common earthly position of Jesus, the very humble position in that sense, no, no PhD in theology, and his family caused the town people to stumble. They refused to see him as higher than themselves and found it impossible to accept him as the Son of God and Messiah. They just couldn't they couldn't buy it, you know, uh, of the, the hardness of their hearts, right? Uh, NIV first century, you know, I'm supposed to say 21st century. <laughs> NIV 21st century, study Bible. If we dug up the NIV first century Bible, that'd be great, Peg. That'd be awesome. But there ain't no such thing. It wasn't, didn't happen to most of the construction in Galilee, that's the region around, like Oklahoma's a region, Duncan's a city, Nazareth's a city, Cephas is a city, Galilee's the region they're in. Most of the construction in Galilee would have been stonework. There aren't a lot of big forests in that part of Israel. Uh, the tiny village of Nazareth, population 150 plus to 200, uh, there would have been a lot of other people within a couple of mile radius, including Cephas, by the way. Could not have supported consistent work. The neighboring city of Sepphoris 
which you see there on the map. It's a little two miles north and a little bit west of Nazareth. We'll go there next May. Uh, we'll go to Na- Nazareth and Sepphoris. First capital of uh, city of Herod Antipas was only a few miles from Nazareth. Sepphoris had plenty of building projects when Jesus was a young man and may have been one of the places Jesus worked. There's no doubt about it because Sepphoris was a crash rebuilding project by the Romans to impress the locals with Roman culture after they culture, conquered the area. And they recruited tectons from a 500-mile radius, according to uh, Josephus. And Jesus is two miles away. So he did a lot of work in Sepphoris. And this may have been part of it. Here's a picture I took several years ago in Sepphoris. And this is the Roman road that probably Roman soldiers built. This is a fancy sidewalk somebody like some tecton built, maybe the Lord Jesus, which was a fancy sidewalk in front of a strip mall on both sides of that road. Yeah, this is two miles north of where Jesus has Yeshua and brothers, okay? Uh, you go a few hundred yards away and you look at some of the fancy people's homes. This is a, 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 a mosaic on the floor of a restroom, uh, of all things called the Mona Lisa of Galilee. Jeez, tectons did stuff like that. They didn't just lay tile. They laid really beautiful mosaics. Uh, maybe in the province of God, since Jesus laid that, I don't know if he did or not, but he could have. Maybe that's been preserved for that reason. Here's another one. Here's another one. Works of art. Then they have this small uh, uh, theater. The Romans always built theaters because they liked uh, entertainment. And these plastic chairs are 2,000 years old. They're the most amazing chairs ever discovered by archaeology. It's unbelievable. And you know, they're in better shape than anything else in the whole site. It's unbelievable, man. They're like, nuclear bomb couldn't destroy them. Now that's more, they, that's more, the plastic chairs are more recent, right? But there's that. Okay. Now, um, let me just throw this at you. God works in mysterious ways. You know, if I had to organize if I've been a consultant, if I've been, I've got a PhD. So if I've been a, done some consulting work, what, what do people mean when they're doing consulting work? It sounds sneaky to me, but, you know, if I've been consulted in the plan on, on how to use the 33 years or so the Lord was going to use on the earth, I wouldn't have had him be working as a tech time for 18 years in three years of ministry. I, there's no way I would have done that, man. I mean, who in the world would come up with a land like that? God. <laughs> and it's perfect. And uh, so often in ministry you do stuff like pray, which is kind of important, or do other little subtle things to try to make things work. And I know people think he, he doesn't do anything all day except on Sundays and Wednesdays. Yeah, we do a lot of stuff, you know. And sometimes, you know, it's uh, I've often said, some like like Bob, Bob Shalit's salvation, this 80-year-old Jewish guy who'd been in the church for like 10 or 15 years, and we just flat tell you, you know, you Christians are way too specific about Jesus. But he liked the music and he liked the potlucks. And so we'd come a little bit and came a little bit and they came all the time. And he knew where I stood. And I did a lot of stuff with Bob. And he knew exactly where I was from. Uh, and in fact, the first time I shared the gospel with him, he said, uh, you've done a great, you've been great, you've been greatly insulting to all the Muslims, Buddhists, and Hindus of the world, young man. And I said, good. That's what I'm trying to be, you know, but, uh, in that context, of course, but, I remember Becky Tidwell was one who about every couple of years she'd say, man, you got, you got to sit down with Bob and explain this. In fact, you can't be so subtle. You got to get in his face. And I said, no, not going to do it. Not going to do it. Like George Bush, the first one. 
And then I'll never forget the men's breakfast when we kind of got halfway through the Bible study. And he was, you know, very articulate. And he just said, uh, uh, Brad, may I interrupt your presentation for a moment? And I thought, oh, great. Another World War II story, right, Bob? Here it comes. And I said, oh, well, you know, I've only got 10 minutes. Yeah, what do you want, Bob? And he said, gentlemen, last night I received Jesus Christ as my Savior. And I went, huh? <laughs> really? I don't believe it. It was a miracle, you know. So God cares more about stuff like that than even Billy Graham or Brad McCord does. But which doesn't mean we, we shouldn't share when we have opportunity. We should. But if I am too lazy to go across the street and share the gospel with somebody, uh, if they're gonna res- if they're gonna respond, if they're really like, they're gonna, they're gonna get it. They're gonna get it with or without my help. Which is, some preachers won't tell you that because they think you'll never witness again. But you should. But yeah, it, it's just strange. And again, you know, uh, we're coming up on the, uh, four year anniversary of Rick's being promoted of oral cancer. August 16th. And I've told Carlo this, you know, the first couple of years after Rick died, I thought about him every day. I mean, every day. I think about him several times part of this church. Um, and anytime I go to the hospital, and I go to the hospital a lot, I think of Rick. It just seems so weird not for Rick not to be there for the first couple of years at all. And, and now I'm kind of semi-used to it. But, I mean, I don't, I don't get that. I don't understand that. I have no explanation for it. I know enough about God to trust him with that. Explain that. Doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, the, uh, in a couple of weeks on Wednesday nights, we're going to start uh, an, uh, about a six-week series based on the book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And we're going to have this young Muslim medical doctor who came to faith and wrote the book and did the DVD series. We're going to see him. He died of cancer about a year ago. And you're thinking... Rick Buchanan and this guy whose name I can't remember are way too strategic. They're a lot more strategic than I am. Why would God promote them prematurely? It's not prematurely. God's got a plan for you, and he's going to give you everything you're going to need to be and become what he wants you to be, which isn't necessarily what your parents want you to be or your pastor wants you to be or what you want to be in your character. And he's more interested in your character than your circumstances. And... uh, you know, uh, I think five seconds after we get to heaven, we'll go, uh, why did I do all that health food and exercise? No, I <laughs> but I don't understand those things. I don't understand why, why God, in the, in the counsel of the sovereign God, the triune God, they decide, I know, you'll be born, uh, in a cattle trough, you'll be born in a, in a stable, wrapped up like a dead man, put in a cattle trough, and then when you get to be 12, you'll be a, uh, an apprentice and you'll work building mosaics for rich Roman pagans for 18 years, and then you can let the cat out of the bag and really go for it for three years. That doesn't make sense to me, but I know it's perfect. (laughs) And I'm certainly not going to second guess. But I will say, this teaches you a lot about the way God sees the value of honest work. And the idea, I just told Murray before the the, the, uh, service started, I said, hey, he's going to go to OSU. He's going to be a world-class engineer. I have no doubt about it. He's a genius guy. He's a hard worker. He's a good Christian guy. Uh, and he's going to be a great engineer. But some people grow up in cultures where they think, well, you know, if I was really committed to the Lord, I wouldn't be an engineer like Dr. Digg or uh, Murray Powers or Steve Skinner. I'd have to be a missionary, a song leader, a youth pastor, or a pastor. Now, you don't have to be. If God calls you to do that, you better do that. If you got a dental school instead, he'll pull you out of dental school and get you uh, to the ministry the long way. 
But uh, the value of hard, honest work. Obviously, this was important. You think Jesus was in the center of God's will during that 18 years he was a tecton? What do you think? Of course, no doubt about it. In all labor there is profit, but just talking about stuff you ought to be doing, less talk, more action, right, Dustin? Dustin's a hard worker, man. He gets after it uh, physically and academically, and that's one reason uh, I respect him so much. He, he does all this stuff. Uh, poor is the one who works with negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent will make rich. Well, at least give you stuff you, you allow you to reach your potential kind of thing. Uh, every, somebody under the poverty line in the United States is rich compared to about 98% of the rest of the world. Go out and see the people who live in Kanoa. You're not going to, even some of the folks that live in the roughest parts of Duncan, and there are some rough parts of Duncan, man. They've got it better than anybody in Kanoa, right? So if we had more time, I'd read all those good Proverbs to you. Uh, but let me just share, talking about the value of good work, hard work, eight ways to be like Jesus at work and at school. And I'm thinking consistently with Jesus' example of being a tecton for 18 years, but also statements like, servants in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not just when they're looking, trying to please them, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, it's your the Lord who wants you to do a good job in the classroom or for the employer you're working for, even if it's not expressly uh, church-related or synagogue-related for the Lord's sake. It wasn't just when he's building a synagogue that he's supposed to do his best work. It's when he's working on uh, mosaic floors for Roman pagans. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than just for men, knowing that from the Lord you're going to receive a reward for doing that. But uh, I want some uh, audience participation from Ron and Steve maybe, because, you know, as a college professor now since '04. Uh, most of these college students aren't like uh, Ashley or Amber or Murray or Dustin or Angel. Most of them don't want to show up. They don't want to show up on time. They don't want to do the homework, um, and it's the teacher's fault. But you find out, and I've talked to Steve, I don't know if you remember about this, but one time you said, just just tell them when they get out of college to show up and do their job. <laughs> you know. And Ron's had some interesting issues. But here, here are eight practical ways to be like Jesus at work or school. Even homeschool. Maybe especially homeschool. Okay, Sydney? I, I know where you, I know where you live. Okay? He gets sent me direction. I couldn't make the, the pig roast because we were in North, but, uh, show up. That's number one. You'd be amazed, you know, I mean, the first week of school, I used to enjoy the first day of school in college because I don't, they don't expect me to know anything yet. And I want to see what the ground rules are and figure out, come up with strategy. Uh, there, every semester, you got two or three people who just take the first day off. And then they show less effort as I go through the semester. So you got to show up. Show up on time. Maybe a little early. Now, Dustin would be like 30 minutes early. One time he brought donuts for the class, which I thought was a nice touch. Of course, he ate the whole box. No, he didn't. Eat. He didn't eat any of it. No. Rule number one, show up. Two, show up on time. Number three, show up on time with a great attitude. Ready to work. Comments, commentary on that? You like it? You, you like, not everybody does that. Not everybody does that. They don't show up or they show up late or they show up on time but they don't want to get to work. Uh, they want to, you know, check their Instagram. Is that something? Yeah, is that something they check? Mm-hmm. Uh, do your best even when the boss isn't looking. That's hard to find somebody like that. Uh, I'm not a betting man except once a year when I go to the Cultaurus meeting in Reno, but uh, uh, I bet you Bo 
shows up, shows up on time, has great attitude, and does his best even when Steve isn't looking. But uh, that's not, a lot of Christians don't do this. I, I can't get too specific, but I, I've had semesters where somebody makes it real clear what, during the introduction phase of the communication class that they're Christian, and then they have a crummy attitude, rolling late. I mean, it's like, don't you realize no, that sin, and number two, it's a terrible testimony. And then when I have to correct them, I'm a bad guy, and it's, it's crazy. And they can't do math. they got a 47, a 37, a 23, and they add up their grades, and they think they should make a B. And it doesn't, it can't work like that, you know? I mean, I'm not a math major, but I can tell that's below 50, you know? Uh, keep working till you clock out. Some people roll in around time, but they don't get working for 30 minutes. Some people stop working uh, 30 minutes before or start packing up. Uh, some college students do that the first couple of classes with me. We don't do that. You know, if we go from 8 a.m. to 9.15, I'm going hard. I'm going through the tape every time. Can you believe it? I might even go two minutes long. Can you believe that? Amen. Yeah, we understand that. I'm not going to stop at 8.55. I'm not done at 9.05. Don't you start packing out. I ain't done yet, you know. You call them on that, and you're a bad guy. Those are the first five. Those are positive. It gets worse. Don't take stuff home that belongs to your employer or other employees. If any, anything like that happened, Ron? Wow. Just the, the cost, that hurts our productivity, and it hurts the, the profit margins of business. Just protecting themselves from the from the sloppy, sinful patterns of some of the employees. No, that's less the people actually steal stuff from you from outside. Don't expect your boss to notice you're doing one through six, showing up, showing up on time, etc. cetera. Uh, or to reward you for doing your job. Now, some people will. I mean, if you do one through six, you're going to stand out. And, I mean, Debbie won employee of the period, which was awarded once, and then decided not to award it again because nobody could do as good as she did. And then she, she got several plaques. In fact, the, the problem with her retiring was we had to take all of our plaques home. We don't have enough room for all the plaques she won, you know. Meanwhile, I haven't won anything at Cameron, but I've been nominated twice for outstanding, uh, uh, adjunct. Uh, last year, well, I won't, last year I've, I've lost twice to interesting t- teachers. And, you know, if you're listening at this as they, I'm not going to win this year either, am I? Because now, because they listen to all this stuff. I kiddingly, <laughs> I'm not paranoid, but uh, about halfway through the semester, I'll say our, our president over there is John MacArthur, not the one that you guys know about, but John MacArthur. And I'll say, those aren't PowerPoint projectors. Those are cameras that go directly to the president of Cameron's office. They're watching us. Yeah, hi, Dr. MacArthur. You know, I'm not paranoid. But uh, don't be discouraged if your coworkers do notice you're doing one through six and they're upset about it. Because you make them look bad in comparison. And you're, and they think you're wanting to make them look bad, and you're not. But you, as a Christian, you've got an obligation to do your best, run through the tape, and they're going to be offended by that. Uh, and that's tough. That's tough to know what to do. But I think you you, you, you don't have to be uh, like a church lady. Well, I'm going to keep working until 5 o'clock because I'm a Christian and you're not. Just do it. You're still going to bum them out. Just like not cussing is going to freak them out too. And not drinking, you know, they're going to, come on, come on, go to the bar, get drunk with us, you know. They, they just want you to, de- to get debauched with them. Okay, we're going to close in prayer, kind of an unorthodox message today. And it's something you don't hear preached a lot, but I mean, the Lord is working with his hands for uh, 18 years, and he only does spiritual stuff for three years. I'm telling you, all that's spiritual. The Lordship of Jesus Christ applies to everything, 
not just to pastors, missionaries, youth ministers, and song leaders, right? So, now, not if you're uh, selling drugs for a living. That's illegitimate. You need to go to jail for that, you know? But any legitimate operation, uh, activity, uh, it's not the Calvinist work ethic. It's the biblical work ethic. It's the Jesus work ethic. So David works hard for the city commissioner, and they're building bridges and fixing roads and all that stuff. And he's he's working hard with his hands. And he goes up there. He doesn't stop being a Christian on Monday morning. He's just as much a Christian on Monday morning, tomorrow morning when he's working on the road, as he is in here listening to the Word of God, right? So be, be encouraged, okay? Let's have a word of prayer. Father, teach us again about the value and the importance and the spirituality of honest hard work, even when what we're doing is not in a church or a parachurch or explicitly ministry activity, even when we work for people or businesses that are quote-unquote secular, they're not Christian necessarily, they're not spiritual necessarily, and help us to realize our attitudes and our actions as we are at work or at school to apply the, the principle, have an important uh, bearing on our testimony, on our Christian life and can be used by you uh, redemptively uh, to plant seeds and even to help people see and believe the gospel. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.